0: So a few years ago, there was a television show called Kids Say the Darndest Things. If you remember this show, it was basically a comedian sitting and talking to kids and asking them questions, and they would say things that were rather hilarious. Well, I um, I basically lived that out as a high school teacher for 16 years, and being around teenagers... And hearing the different things they say and I would love to say that the high school seniors were way different than the junior hires but actually a lot of times the things that came out of their mouths were about the same and so I was shocked one day when I heard from a junior hire a 13 or 14 year old who came up to me and said CS Lewis is brilliant and I went and what what's next? Like, what's the joke? Like, is this some kind of play on words or something like that? But in actuality, he said C.S. Lewis was brilliant. I've heard this from a couple different people. So I asked one of the teens that had said this to me, I said, well, why do you think C.S. Lewis is, is brilliant? And he said, oh man, uh, it's he just makes such amazing things and so you know my mind goes to oh is it the is it the books he've, he's written is it the apologetics where he defends the faith is it his history of the english language which is a you know six thousand six thousand page book about the english language but no this teenager said he created his own world and i went okay well, what do you mean? And he goes, wow. like, Narnia, he, he made his own world. And then he made this world as a part of this world, and we can only get to it. And he just must be so brilliant to make this whole secret, separate world that we couldn't see. And if you're familiar with Narnia, you know that the story goes that actually we're the derivative world. The real world is something that Aslan, the great lion who represents God and Jesus, had created. And there's all these many different worlds, and we're just one of the many different worlds. And there's this second world that actually influences this world. C.S. Lewis had borrowed this idea from Celtic literature, or Celtic if you want to mispronounce it like Americans do. But Celtic literature, this was called Otherworld Literature. What this meant was there was a secondary world that influenced our world, and it was usually only through one or two kind of weak spots in our world, much like a wardrobe or a picture or something like that. If you've read any of Narnia, you know there's countless ways into Narnia. C.S. Lewis created this, and and honestly, this is kind of still popular today. Harry Potter, those books are all about a separate world sandwiched into our world. And for the the kids that are listening, books like The Keeper of the Lost Cities and countless other movies and books where there's this hidden class of people all dealing with us right now that we don't even necessarily know are there. I mean, think about some of the movies that are popular now. We've got movies full of ghosts and goblins and demons that seems like every year there's four or five movies that come out like that about some supernatural realm. Think about our superhero movies. What are they all about? They're all about somebody extra special, extraordinary, sometimes in a separate world that we can't even see right in front of us. Think about the countless religions that we have. There's all sorts of religious groups that want a higher consciousness to interact with some spirit world. There are people that make money off of people coming to them because they want to talk to somebody in the spirit world or know what the spirit world is telling them. This is not something C.S. Lewis made up nor is it something the Celtics made up. As a matter of fact, this is just borrowing from God and the way he made our world. See, our world is not just a world of the flesh and the physical that we can touch and see and hear, but there's more to it than that. There's a spirit realm that many of us are kind of uncomfortable talking about, partially because of those movies and things like that that get it really wrong, or people get so excited about that they're like crazy into the spirit realm and talking to your, your spirit or angel or whatever. Also, we get kind of a little uncomfortable with it because there are people who claim the name of Christ that make a way bigger deal of the spiritual realm than they should. Today's passage, today's psalm that we'll be looking at, Psalm 82, is going to be dealing with the spirit realm. But it's not really the focus of the psalm. There's actually a bigger picture here that I want us to get. You see, our world has been flattened out. During the Enlightenment, this is the period of time where uh, the the kind of the classical thinking processes of the Romans and the Greeks are rediscovered. During the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution that happened at the same time, our world was flattened. It was disconnected from anything supernatural. And because of that, our secular, non-believing people in our culture want something higher. And they just don't know where to go. They wouldn't, the last place they'd want to go is to the Bible. So instead, they watch movies and they read books and they discuss the idea of some higher power. I mean, you see this, don't you, in the UFO craze. You all know that the United States government was releasing information about unidentified flying objects, which, by the way, everything is unidentified until you identify it. doesn't mean it's an alien. But these unidentified flying phenomenon, people were like, oh, this is going to be it. We're going to be able to talk to other cultures that are higher than us. It's no different than wanting to talk to a spirit or try to reach the spiritual realm. Our world is all about trying to connect with something more because, honestly, it seems like something more is going on. This last year, with the insanity, there's something manipulating and putting in. It, whether it's a conspiracy or whether it's this or that. We see the need for some grander explanation. And our culture is going to all the wrong places. Because the Bible is very clear. There is a spiritual realm. And it interacts with this realm. We cannot see it, but we can see what it does. And this is not the demon behind everything that happens or an angel on everyone's shoulder. Instead, this is the biblical understanding of a spiritual realm that interacts with our world. And that God has given some influence to those spirits to interact with us. So here are some examples in the Bible where we see discussion of the spiritual realm. So I'm going I'm to lay all these out so you guys can see that there are countless examples of the Bible talking about the spiritual realm. And many of these you already know. Some of them maybe you haven't seen before. Here's the first one. This comes from Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1, 6 through 12 says, and now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. Satan's a title. It means the accuser. It's also the name for the devil. Sons of God means those, they're, 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 angelic-like beings, supernatural beings, come before the Lord, that's God. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered him and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out of the presence of the Lord. So what do we see in this passage? What we see in this passage is we see that there are these spiritual beings, the sons of God as they are called in this passage, that come before the Lord satan is one of them we know what satan is he's a fallen angel he's a fallen spiritual being he comes before the lord the lord says have you considered job and the devil goes yeah well you've been protecting him and god says okay go down there you can touch him but don't touch his body now does the devil appear in some big you know demonic looking thing and do all these things to jo- job and kill all his family no he inspires the amorites to come in and kill his flocks He inspires another group to come in and steal this, and then he uses the wind to knock down the house on his kids, and his kids die. So we see the devil uses people underneath him to go do his work for him. Second thing we see is in Job 2.1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan came also, and you know how this one goes. God says you can now touch his body. And so the devil is allowed to do some pretty nasty stuff to his body. But notice, it's that word again. Again they came. There seems to be some sort of the, the sons of God, these, these angelic beings, these supernatural beings, are coming before God on a regular basis. It appears to be. Let's keep going. Second Chronicles 18. And Micaiah, this is a, this is a prophet of the Lord, said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord, that's God, sitting on his throne, and all the hosts of heaven... Standing on his right hand and on his left. Host of heaven is another word for sons of God, which is another word for spiritual beings. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab, the king of Israel, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another thing. Then a spirit came forth, so that's what the host of heaven was a spirit, and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said, By what means? And he said, I will go out and there will be a lying spirit in all the prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall go and succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster concerning you. So in this picture, we have these, these supernatural angelic beings coming before God again. And God says, hey, I need somebody to go down there and I need you to take care of Ahab for me. And they all discuss among themselves. And one of them says, I'll do it. And he goes down and does it. Now notice that that being goes down and does it, but God gets the credit for it. Verse uh, Daniel chapter 10. Here's another example. This is Daniel. He's been praying for three weeks and the Lord sends an angel to him. But listen to what it says. Then he, that's the angel, said to me, that's Daniel, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before your God, your words have been heard and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. So you read that and you go, so this angel, we think it's Gabriel. Gabriel was on his way to come visit Daniel, but the ruler of the nation of Persia resisted him. Keep going. But Michael, the archangel, one of the chief princes, okay, came to help me for I was left there with the kings of Persia. That word prince for the prince of Persia and the princes for Michael is the same word. It means a spiritual leader. So what had happened was Gabriel was on his way to come help Daniel, and for whatever reason, God allowed Gabriel to be stopped on his way by the angel or the spiritual being who was helping to rule the nation of Persia. Interesting. So we look at all these and we go, okay, by the way, there's plenty more. These are my favorites. There are lots and lots of passages about spiritual beings influencing things here on the earth. And you might say, okay, yeah, you've just done all these Old Testament ones. Old Testament, eh, we're still not super comfortable with the Old Testament. Well, let's look at the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 6. This should be a very famous passage. This is where we get the armor of God. Look at what it says. Verse 10. that you may be able to withstand on the evil day, having done all to stand firm. So Paul is not going to kind of work his way around this and make it some sort of, oh, there's all these bad things. He's saying there's flesh resistance and there's spiritual resistance. And we need to be armored for both. And in this passage specifically, he's saying, get ready, the spiritual's coming at you. But praise be to God, we can put on this armor and it can't touch us. So where do we see this today? Where do we see this? I mean, you don't see people talking about demon possession and we don't see people talking about the influence of demons and things like that. Well, I want to point you to 1 Corinthians 10, 19 and 20. This is where Paul is talking to Corinth about sacrificing food to idols. And he says, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offered to demons and not to God. I do not want you to participate with demons see here's the thing we love to look at these ancient cultures and all the things that they worship we like to look at it with a form of chronological snobbery we look at it and we go oh we're so much smarter now and we know that there is no god of the rock and we know there's no god of the tree and there's no god of the thunder and there's no god of this and that those people back then were so simple (laughs) ha 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 Right? We think we are so much better than them. But here's the thing. You think about some of these gods, these idols that people worshipped back in the day. Look at what they were giving to these idols. This morning I was reading in Second uh, Kings, in my devotional time, and the leader of the nation of Israel sacrificed his oldest and his youngest to an idol. Now, let me, let me explain something to you they love their kids as much as you love your kids. So why would they be sacrificing to an idol? Would it be because, well, I got nothing better to do. Let's form an idol out of wood. And here we go. What if, what if one of these fallen angels, one of these demons had appeared masquerading as some sort of religious entity? And that's where they got this, oh, we need to worship. what if that's what it is? Now, we don't necessarily see that. Paul is saying simply the idols. When you worship idols, you are worshiping demons. You You are participating in the worship of a being that is not God. You are worshiping little g gods. So we need to get this idea that these people were not stupid. They were not crazy. They were manipulated. The Amorites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, all of these ites that are all around Israel that are worshiping all these crazy gods... They all had reasons for it. And this is why Israel constantly goes back and forth is because they're hearing the stories and they're saying, oh, well, that happened? Okay, well, I'm going to worship Molech now. No, we're going to worship Baal. We're going to worship Asherah. This is a spiritual battle for the hearts and souls of the Israelites. And the enemy is coming after them. So in this psalm today, we get to see a behind-the-scenes picture of what's happening in the throne room of heaven. We get to see what God is doing when he assembles these supernatural, these spiritual beings, and he gets together with them. Now, as exciting as that is, we don't have a lot of information about it. I'm gonna give you, I've already shown you some of it. I'm gonna give you a little bit more. But really, we need to not get too excited about these spiritual beings and miss the point of the passage. Because the point of this passage is that there is injustice in our world and that those who participate in or do injustice are going to be judged, even to the point of death. And so we can't miss the forest for the trees, right? We need to make sure we get what this passage is talking about. And on the way there, we get to get a little excited knowing that there's a spiritual realm and that it's influencing things, and it may help us kind of understand the bigger picture. So here's our main point. God does not take lightly... The mistreatment of the lowly and the powerless in the world by those in leadership positions. God does not take lightly any of the mistreatment of the lowly and the powerless in the world. And this is meant to encourage us. See, God is going to hold all rulers accountable. All rulers, all leaders accountable. And you may be like, huh, that's why I never was in leadership. Well, you are in leadership in some place in your life. And as a matter of fact, how you use your life and what you do with your life is a form of justice or injustice. So don't think you get off the hook just because you're not an elected official. So here's the outline of this passage. There are three parts. We see in verse one, we see the divine counsel. We'll talk about that in a minute. We see God's case against the gods, verses two through five, and then we see God's judgment against the gods. So as we read this, there's there's two groups of people that need to be encouraged by this. The first group is the weak and the lowly. So when you are facing unjust rule, when people are treating you poorly, this this psalm is meant to say, it's okay, God's going to take care of it in the end. But it's also meant to warn them to say, don't repay evil for evil. Just because you've been oppressed and you've been treated unfairly doesn't mean you get to turn around and do that to the people that were doing it to you. And now for leaders, the other group that's here, leaders need to be petrified because in this passage, it says they will die like men. If he's talking to spiritual beings, which I believe he is, he's saying, I'm going to take your immortality. You've been around for a really long time. I'm going to take that away and you're going to die. I mean, that's, that's a scary place to be. And if he's going to do that to the, to the supernatural beings, we are also going to feel that as well. So we need to understand that there is judgment for those who are unjust. All of us will stand before the Lord one day on judgment day. And that is what this is talking about. The people of God were to be an ideal nation where there was no injustice, where there was true peace. But unfortunately, they were full of sinners, just like we are full of sinners, just like our country is full of sinners, our world is full of sinners, and there were times they acted unjustly. And when they did, we we were to resist, we were to turn back to true justice. So here we go. Let's start walking through the psalm. Verse 1, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. So this is the divine council. This is another way to say this is an assembly of divine beings. The word for God and the word for divine and the word for gods are all the same word, just with different endings in the Hebrew. So what this is saying is it's saying the, the God is meeting with his council of gods to discuss what they should be doing. Now, when you hear something like that, your radar should go up, because we believe there is one God. We're not talking about polytheism here. Polytheism, poly theism, gods. This is not many gods. What this is saying is just like what we saw earlier when we talked about idols and worshiping those little g gods, is it's a spiritual being that if you saw him or her, you would fall down and go, ah, stop. You're you're too much. You're whatever. What happens every time a person encounters an angel in the Bible? They fall down in fear like dead men, and they worship that being. And if these beings are also masquerading as gods through all of these false religions in the world, then guess what? That's what they are pretending to be. So I think that's what Asaph's kind of trying to bring up, bring out here. Now, I would be remiss in not mentioning that some interpreters think that this is men, that these are rulers, Israelite rulers. Now, I think that there are plenty of good Bible scholars on both sides. I just have a hard time with it because these men, these sons of God, are given rule over the nations, Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 32. But we never see that in the Bible. We never see any Jewish men giving rule over all the nations, so it doesn't quite fit. And it also doesn't fit with verse 7 as well. But either way, you get the point. Even if this is just talking about men and this isn't some divine council of angelic beings and it's just men, the point is the same. The point is you need to act justly in every realm that you're in. If you don't act justly, judgment is on its way. The just, merciful God is going to judge you because you did not do what was just. But as we look at this, we're gonna look at it from the spirit version. One author writes, history is played out on two levels, just like what C.S. Lewis was talking about. One is seen, the other is unseen. Humans are the main actors, but other gods are also main actors. The two scripts are interwoven. What happens among the gods happens among us. What happens among us affects what happens among the gods. Nevertheless, both the gods and the humans who act and are responsible for what they did. And we need to see that. So if God is going to be this judging and this condemning on these angelic beings who we would be fearful of because they are so magnificent, he's going to be just as rigorous on us on what we do when it comes to justice. So let's keep going in this verse. It says, God has taken his place. That's kind of a weird way of wording it taken his place means he has gotten he's, he's in the place where he's supposed to be now you go okay i'm kind of envisioning courtroom he's sitting at his chair that's not the way hebrew courts worked this actually the wording is actually god stands in his place and what he's doing is he is now standing up to deliver the verdict if you've been in a courtroom or if you've watched it on tv you know that there's only two different groups of people that stand up the accused, usually it's the lawyer, and then the jury foreman. If there's no jury, the judge still doesn't stand. But in Hebrew courts, when the judge stands, it means he's delivering the verdict. And so what God is doing here is God is standing and he's saying, I'm delivering the verdict. You know, one of the places we see Jesus standing in the Bible is when Stephen is martyred. And even though the Sanhedrin and the the, the Pharisees and Sadducees have condemned Stephen to death for blaspheming, Jesus is standing delivering the verdict of saying, come on in, you are forgiven. So I think we need to get that idea that this is God delivering a verdict on these leaders who are then in charge of the leaders under them, the human leaders who are then in charge of us. All of us are under judgment if we are not acting justly. But... Don't get hung up on the little G gods. The Big G God is the focus. He is the main point. So what do we see here? We see God as the sovereign king of all, the good judge of all, and the merciful savior of all. We need to make sure we don't miss out that this section is all about God. And we may go, well, I don't know if I believe in angelic beings doing... That. Fine, set that aside. Stay with me on the fact that this is about God. He is sovereign, he is good, he is merciful. Don't miss that. So the gods and us will be judged by what we do, just or unjust. Now we get into the next section, starting in verses two through five. God's case against the gods. God's case against the spiritual leaders. Verse two, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. So again, Selah is a musical term which means stop and think deeply for a second. So this, this, this song, or however Asaph is putting this out there at the beginning, is saying, stop and think about it. How much longer are you going to judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Now, if I was to pull this phrase out and just give it to you some other time, you would think that the person was talking to whom? God. Because isn't this what we see people asking God all the time? God, why did you do this? God, why did this happen? Why is it that the wicked are getting away? As a matter of fact, I think we had a psalm a few weeks ago that had something very similar to this. But notice here, it is God asking the leaders, why are you doing this? Scripture is constantly showing us that God is patient and waiting, but never condoning of corruption. Waiting for those, for all to come to faith. But yet, here he comes to these judges and he says, How much longer? Because I'm done with what you're doing. Now this concept of judge, we have a whole book of the Bible called Judges and we think of them just as we would a judge sitting up with his robes and so on. But that word judge is, is, it means a lot more to the Israelites than just settling disputes. It means leader. It means the one who's going to decide the direction that they should go. And because of the fact that they're a leader, it's their job to stand for those who can't stand for themselves. It means settling disputes. It means making decisions. It means defending those who can't defend themselves. And so we see this, that God's going to render judgment. Verse 1, verse 8, he's going to judge the entire earth. He is going to be in charge of all of it. And we get this word here, unjustly. We're going to see in verse 3 the word justice. This word has been very popular in the last 17, 15, 16 months, hasn't it? It's been all over the place. I would say probably a week doesn't go by where you don't hear about somebody protesting for justice. So much so that our world now, we have now added words to modify the word justice. We've got social justice, racial justice, climate justice, gender justice, educational justice, housing, I mean, you just can keep going, so much so that now if we want to talk about what the Bible teaches about justice, which up until the last maybe five years would have just been justice, now we have to say biblical justice. It's easy when we see all this talk of justice and maybe mistalk, misspeak about justice to get tired of it. I don't want to talk about justice anymore. I'm frustrated. I'm confused because my version of justice doesn't match up with your version of justice. And a lot of times, if we're honest, the word justice actually means revenge, doesn't it? It means I want to do to that person and then some for what they did to me. Or maybe it means I don't feel like I'm getting my fair share, which is debatable, and so I'm gonna claim that this is a justice issue. It has become a word that has been used way too rampantly. So what does it mean? Well, we're going to use this passage to define it, and then we're going to spread out a little bit more into the Bible to define it. Because if we get this wrong, then we're sitting right with these these rulers in the line of God's judgment. And that's not a place we want to be. So verse 2 says, don't act unjustly. And then verses 3 and 4 are going to tell us what it means to act justly. So let's walk through it. Verse 3, Give justice to the weak and fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So this is, this is kind of like what the commissioning service would be for all leaders or for these spiritual beings. Is to say, this is your job description. It's your job to do this. This is the most important thing. Yeah, you got to run a country. Yeah, you got to run a business. Yeah, you got to run a family. But this is the starting place give justice maintain the right rescue the weak deliver them so there's four action words here four action words and then four groups of people that it's being applied to so here are the action words the first two go together give justice and maintain the right give justice means vindicate maintain the right means give justice great definition there what this means is everybody's treated fairly equally That's what these two words mean. The second two words, rescue and deliver, are also similar words. They both mean save or get out of trouble or free from oppression. Again, there's another loaded word, isn't that? So in this context, the actions that are to be done by a leader are to protect those and treat everyone fairly and also save them if they're not being treated fairly. So who is it that is being, this is directed to? The weak, the fatherless, the afflicted, and the destitute. All three, all four of these words, with the exception of fatherless, all apply to the same basic idea. It's those who lack, or if we want to use the words of today, it would be those who are marginalized, those on the fringes who are not being protected are the ones that the leaders are supposed to protect fatherless is a very powerful one because if you didn't have a father in this time period you had nothing because you were given all of your land and your even your job description what was jesus's job he was a carpenter where did he get that from his father joseph and it's the same way through as a matter of fact last names of people in this time their last names were their dad's names jesus's name if he had been joseph's actual kin, would have been jesus bar joseph I would be John Bar Larry. You all would be the same. Bar meaning son of. If you don't have a dad, you would just be your name and you would be really hurting for anyone to care for you. And so all of these words together are God saying, listen, those who are on the outskirts are the ones we need to protect. But now don't we look at this and we go, wait a sec. Didn't you just say treat everyone fairly? Don't we need to treat the people that are wealthy fairly too? they're going to get taken care of just fine. It's those who are not being taken care of that need to be taken care of. And if we overemphasize one, then we're going to leave the neglect of the other. And then now we've got to be fair to the rich and fair to the poor, back and forth. You see that this picture of justice is equality and fair treatment, especially directed, even over the top directed at those who need it. This is the way God views the world. And this is the way he demands leaders to view the world as well. But notice something here. Notice what it does not say. It does not say our needy or our weak. Go rescue our weak. Go rescue our needy. It says the needy. See, here's the thing. So many times when justice is brought out, it's justice for my group, my tribe my community but not for others it's justice for americans but not for this group we need to look at it and say this entire world needs justice this entire world of needy destitute people need to be cared for and that's what these leaders are supposed to do there is no us and them it's all of us So justice as defined here is these four words. Give justice, maintain right, rescue, and deliver. But the Bible gives a much bigger version of this. So I'm going to teach you guys three $5 words. Now I'm not going to be paying you actually for these words, but they are big college level words that you need to know. So here you go. You've been warned. So justice is based on God, his word, and doing what's right and wrong. We have three words for this. The first one is ontology, which again, a $5 word. This word, along with epistemology and ethics. I'm going to define them because I didn't want to scrunch up the, the screen, so I'm going to define them on the next slide here. But these are words that philosophy uses to explain how we get to knowing what right and wrong is. So let's do the first one. Ontology. Ontology is what is the ultimate reality? What is the way the world is set up? What is the ultimate reality? Epistemology is how do we know truth? How do we know what we know? And then ethics is how do we know right from wrong? So if you start with there is no God and we really can't know much of anything, is there any wonder why when we get to ethics, There is no right and wrong. Isn't that our world right now? There is no God. Everything's just physical. And we really can't know much of anything. So guess what? Just choose your own adventure. I don't think that's going to work out so well for us. But when we look at what the Bible says, the Bible says there is a God. He is the ultimate reality. That's our ontology. That's the way we need to start. This is the starting point of all making sense of the world this is the starting point of justice he made us and we're going to follow what he says that's where justice comes from the second thing we know there's a god and his bible clearly explains that so we have these two branches of being able to know we have the natural world the most natural thing is that there is a creator but people have a hard time seeing that because of sin so god gave us his word to help us see that that's how we know what's really real And then how do we know right from wrong? Romans 1 says, we know, or Romans 2 says, we know it's written on our hearts. But again, sin has made us, I don't really want that. And so God gave us his word as well, so we know what's right and wrong. So the basis of justice is that there is a God, he's told us about himself in his word, and we can know right and wrong based on his word. And so this is the foundation, the ultimate source of justice. As soon as we forget about this, as soon as we leave this out, we get verse 5. Verse 5 describes the people under these rulers, whether they be spiritual or man. Look what it says. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. If that is not the perfect verse for our world right now, I don't know what is. They've given up on God. They've given up on knowing anything for real. So they're just kind of doing their own thing. They don't have any knowledge or understanding. And they're walking around in darkness, bumping into each other. And is there any wonder why in our world right now, it seems like things are shaken? Our foundations are shaken. Our foundations have been shaken because we've, we've, we've gone away from the justice that's listed in God's Word. And when we do that, we see no knowledge, no understanding, stumbling around in the dark. And you know what? This is exactly, this is exactly how the devil wants it. This is exactly how these fallen spiritual beings want it. Look at 2 Corinthians 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You know, this, this year has been a year of very much introspection, a lot of people turning in on themselves, even more so than we've ever had before. And the darkness is palpable. The, the, the lack of knowledge, the lack of understanding is dangerous with how little understanding and how much darkness there is in this world. And there is reasons why we feel like we're on this uneven ground. It's not just a lack of knowledge on these leaders, but it's a lack of action but based on the knowledge. And it's interesting here that this this in our Psalms context, this shaking is based on the oppression, the, the abuse of those who can't care for themselves. And there's lots of them that can't care for themselves. I'd be remiss without saying, a justice issue that still needs to be on our radar is the fact that we've killed 70 million babies in the womb. Talk about innocent who can't take care of themselves. But unfortunately in our world, justice and everything else around it has become political now and so everything is politics and so for me, I know, maybe for you as well, it gets political, I just kind of like, I don't want to deal with politics. But we do have to deal with justice and justice says we care for those who can't care for themselves and then Those who can't care for themselves or who have done things to hurt others. We need to care for them So there's this justice part where we need to care for everybody that's involved Not just be against one group but care for all those who are needy Look at what it says in proverbs 14:31. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Again, there's so much charged language about taking care of the poor and the homeless and the, the, the single moms and the single dads and the kids with grandparents and the dealing with. There's so much involved with caring for all these people. And politics gets involved, and we've got to do this or we've got to do that or we've got to provide this, we've got to provide that. What we are called to do is we are called to be generous to them. And that looks different every single time we do that. It's not enough to say, I don't like the policies, so I'm going to do nothing. You don't like the policies, find something else to do. You don't like the way our government's taking care of the poor and those who can't cater for themselves, find some other way to do it. This isn't saying, line up with what the government's doing or the way we used to do it or the way other groups do it. Ask the Lord. He'll give you a picture. This leadership is is always about caring for those who can't care for themselves. And it's not saying that those who can't care for themselves are unable to. They've just been put in a situation where they can't for whatever reason or can't as well as they should. So it's our job to step in. So that that is the charges against the leaders. He's saying, you're not caring for the people under you. And now we get the verdict. This is where he steps in and says, this is what you get. So we get God's judgment on the God's. Verses 6 and 7, I said, that's God talking, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any other prince. This idea of like men, it doesn't really really mean much to say to a man, you're going to die like a man. That doesn't mean much. But if you say to a a spiritual being, you're going to die like a man, that's a big deal because they've been around since the creation. So this idea of I said you are God's is saying I made you. I put you in this position. I can unmake you and take you out of your position. I brought you into this world. I can take you out of this world. This idea here is that God is saying I am not going to let you get away with it. See, that's the world's way of understanding it. That's why their view of justice is so messed up. Because they believe this is all there is. So if somebody commits an injustice and dies, they get away with it. No, they don't. The Bible is clear on that. And God is not capricious. He is not sentencing these gods for their refusal to act some way that He doesn't. He's saying, you didn't act the way I told you. You didn't act like me. Therefore, I am going to judge you. And then we get verse 8. This is Asaph bringing it back to the focus, which is arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. This final line is him saying, they are yours, you possess, that inherit means to possess, they are your nations, come back, judge, be done with it. Isaiah 24, 21, and 22 refers to this and says, on that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven, or the sons of God, or the council of Divine counsel in heaven and the kings of earth on the earth. They will all be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in prison, and after many days, they will be punished. This is the promise that he's giving us that there is going to be an end and there is going to be a final reckoning. So, the final thought of Asaph is God, come in and fix this. Come in and fix this. So, here are the three things we're called to do from this passage. Number one, plead for God's justice to reign. Plead for God's justice to reign. Ephesians 6, 18 says, pray at all times in the spirit and with all prayer and supplication. We need to pray that God's justice reigns on this earth right here and right now. It is the solution to the problems. It is the solution to the issues we have. It's god's justice to reign the second thing we need to do is we need to anticipate god's kingdom coming not you only live once but recognizing that this world is just a breath on a cold day it disappears and then eternity is forever we need to look forward to his coming get ready he's coming we're going to be standing before him before we know it so we're praying and pleading that it would come. We are preparing for it to be here. And we do that by spreading God's salvation to the needy. And guess what? That word needy just doesn't mean somebody who's homeless. It doesn't mean somebody who's below the median income. It's all of us. We need to recognize that every single one of us is weak and needy in our sins. Some are also weak and needy in our physicality. And so we meet both those needs. And we need to do that continuously because God in His mercy came and met our needs. Look what 2 Corinthians 8 says. You know this passage. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor so that by His poverty you might become rich. And Jesus says in Luke 4, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty all who are oppressed. So we as Christians are to go about the work of helping people get out of their sins and get out of their poverty, and then training them up so they can go do that as well. Are we doing that? This spreading is not just what God calls us to do, but it's what Christ compels us to do through his salvation. We've been saved and forgiven much. We need to go out and teach those people out there that have not heard the good news that they could be saved and forgiven much. So Christ is victorious. He's the victor. We need to live in this victory. These heavenly powers, these spiritual beings... Were created by Christ. Colossians 1:16 says that. They were all created by him and for him. On the cross, Christ not only took our sins and had lived the perfect life, but he also destroyed the powers so that they cannot affect us. Their powers are destroyed. Colossians 2.15. He says, Disarmed the rulers. They are subject to Jesus. 1 Peter 3 says, They are under him all of them are subjected to him. Romans 8 tells us, no matter how great these spiritual powers are, no matter how great the rulers on this earth are, nothing can separate us from Christ. In Ephesians, we saw earlier, it's still going to be a battle. It says wrestling against spiritual powers. But we look forward to what 1 Corinthians says when it says, at the end he will destroy every rule every authority and every power for he will put them under his feet so we continue to pray lastly i want to focus my, the last few words i have here with you on jesus that colossians passage is is powerful colossians 2:13 through 15 and you that's us we're dead in our trespasses We were poor, weak, and needy, and uncircumcision of our flesh. God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us and its legal demands. He nailed this on the cross. We stop there so much, and we say, that's amazing, and it is. We could spend the rest of our lives talking about it and not scratch the surface. But the next verse says, as well, He disarmed These authorities, he put them to open shame. He triumphed over them. He is marching his victorious parade through the kingdom, the the, the capital, and these rulers are being shamed. They're brought about. They're the captives who are chained, who are bound, who are not able to do anything to us because the worst they can do is put us to death and we get to go home to be with the Lord. This is exactly where we need to be. See, when Jesus came and died, it showed us how seriously God takes injustice. It showed us how serious God takes the oppression of his people, not only in their sins, but in every single aspect of their life. He said, this is how serious I take it. And so today, as we celebrate communion together, we get to see how serious God takes the oppression of his people. He allowed his son to be unjustly murdered to pull us out of our sins, to pull us out of our need.